Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning and welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club program. I'm Terry Christensen, host and executive producer of Creativity's Valley Politics and your moderator for today's program. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual series addressing the myriad impacts of COVID-19 on our community and society at large. We're grateful for the generous support of our members and donors and hope you'll join them. Please consider making a donation online or text DONATE to 415-329-4231. We also encourage you to like, subscribe, and share videos with your friends and family. Now it's my pleasure to introduce today's guests. Cindy Chavez is the chair of the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors. She was elected to the board in 2013. She's been elected twice since then. She's been re-elected twice, I should say. She represents more than 400,000 residents in District 2, which includes East and Central San Jose. Supervisor Chavez previously served two terms on the San Jose City Council, and she's also served as the executive officer of the South Bay AFL-CIO Labor Council and Working Partnerships USA. Sam Licardo is the mayor of San Jose. He's a longtime San Josean, and his career in public service includes several years as a criminal prosecutor at the local and federal level, as well as two terms on the San Jose City Council before he was elected mayor in 2014 and re-elected to a second term in 2018. Dr. Jeff Smith is Santa Clara County's executive officer. Dr. Smith served as a doctor, lawyer, elected official, and executive for this and other parts of the Bay Area, including Martinez and Contra Costa County. Please join me in welcoming County Executive Smith, Mayor Licardo, and Supervisor Chavez. Let's just start with something personal. How has the shelter-in-place order affected your lives and how you're conducting your business as public officials? Cindy, we'll start with you. Thank you. And thank you for having us. This is, um, I'm looking forward to this discussion. I think the most um, profound thing is that those of us who are in public service are really used to being around a lot of people all the time. And um, now we go from one little box, you know, our office and maybe to a press conference. um, And we do a lot of meetings online. I would say just personally, um, I have an 18 year old son at home. And our house seems much smaller with him in it because he is getting ready to go to college. And this is, you know, it's for all of our families, it's put some pressure on us. And it's a little like having a caged bear. Brennan is 6'3 and 300 pounds, ready to go play football in the fall. And so it's, you know, it's had an impact on all of us. Sam, what about you? Well, you know, I I certainly can't complain. You know, my only gripes are about needing toilet paper and a haircut. Um, But... (laughs) You know, I think Cindy put it very well. Well, come on by. We've got a toilet paper stock, but we don't cut hair. <laughs> we'll take what we can get, Terry. And by the way, thanks for having me uh, virtually. Uh, but, you know, Cindy put it very well. We are uh, used to being in communication with our residents. And, you know, this virtual stuff, we know it's necessary, but it is no substitute for really understanding what people are experiencing, particularly since we know so many of our residents are on the wrong side of the digital divide and cannot communicate with us in this way. We have, yeah. we all have, you know, board meetings and council meetings and so forth. And we know who is able to communicate with us. And that's not necessarily those uh, who are most 
imperiled and struggling the most through this tough time. Jeff Smith, how's the life of a county executive different? Well, it's quite a bit different. I'm spending most of my time in the emergency operations center trying to organize the emergency response and make sure that uh, we have all of the entities together in the entire region working in concert. Um, Every once in a while, I go over across the street to my office and the floor that I work on is pretty much empty. There's uh, one or two people there. We've sent home basically all of our, quote, non-essential workers. Uh, So we're working with a skeleton crew. And uh, at the same time, we're trying to put together the budget for next year, which is looking pretty awful because of the recession that's going on and all of the problems associated with COVID virus. From a personal level, I um, at home, it's my wife and I and my youngest daughter, I haven't been able to see the grandkids, uh, been uh, pretty much isolated, uh, just like everyone else. So it's a weird new world. It's a weird new world. Let's stay with you, Dr. Smith, uh, for the first question. Well, I guess it's the second question. Uh, So it looks like the curve has flattened or it's flattening. And if things aren't getting better yet, at least they're not getting, uh, at least they're getting worse much more slowly. Can you see a light at the end of the tunnel? And how will we know when we see one? Well, it's true that uh, because the public health uh, directors, uh, Dr. Cody's leading uh, from our county, moved to the shelter in place rapidly, it did flatten the curve and we see far fewer cases and deaths than we would have otherwise expected. Um, In terms of seeing uh, light at the end of the tunnel, that's pretty hard to visualize at this point because in order to... uh, prevent the spread of this virus and try to mute the pandemic, the only tool we really have is shelter in place. We don't have a treatment. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have any other specific uh, way to deal with the pandemic. So we're going to be looking, I think, with the new order at some loosening of the criteria, but only Um, coupled with strong testing and uh, case tracing and looking clearly at how people are protecting themselves. So I think we're looking forward, um, sadly, to another spike probably in the late summer and early uh, fall uh, because we don't have a consistent shelter-in-place program for the rest of the country. And since we're so mobile, We'll expect um, higher numbers because other people will be traveling here and traveling around the nation. I'm sure we'll come back to several of those points. Let me ask Cindy Chavez, though. Santa Clara County was first in the nation to issue a shelter-in-place order. How, How was our county able to see this was necessary before others? What did we do right, and did we do it soon enough? You know, I, I, so first let me say that, um, you know, the county is really a lot of people. And Dr. Sarah Cody and the public health team really dug in and recognized that we were an epicenter. And I think moved very quickly and very bravely, um, you know, when not a lot of other people were doing it. So I, I have a lot of respect for them. I think, you know, the thing that 
that I'm just really reflecting on is that we're going to get a lot right and we're going to get a lot wrong. And, and we may not know until months, maybe even years later, what we know, what we know now. And I think evidence of that was recently discovering that we had um, three people who died of COVID-19 before we knew um, that we had our first case or, yeah. And so, and I'm sure Dr. Smith at a later time can talk a little bit more about this, but my aha from that is that um, that our that I'm really blessed that our staff was willing to be brave at a time when there were a lot of naysayers. Yeah, and if I could just add to that, you know, I think we really should give credit to the county and and working in concert with the other counties for saving thousands of lives. I mean, I think we see what's going on in the rest of the country, and there's no question that thousands of lives have been saved as a result of their quick action. But I think when the story gets written about any pandemic, the, the collective answer is going to be none of us <laughs> moved fast enough as a country, right? And and so it is always going to be easy for folks to say we should have moved sooner. We could not have known, obviously, uh, but I'm really proud that that our county stepped up. Thank you for jumping in there, Sam, because I should have said earlier to all of you, just jump in whenever you want to make this a conversation. <laughs> Don't wait for me to ask you a question. But Sam, here's my question for you. Okay. So public health is primarily a county responsibility. So I, what's the city's role in addressing the academic, not academic, epidemic? Yeah, our, our, we're playing a support role. We understand the county and the public health uh, team uh, are the experts, and uh, they're issuing the mandates. Our job is to enforce the mandates uh, and also take on other support roles. So we've been working uh, very collaboratively with the county, for example, uh, around the issue of food supply, uh, that is a huge challenge we know with thousands of our families now without a paycheck. Uh, and so we've taken on responsibility for coordinating that distribution uh, countywide now uh, in collaboration with many great nonprofits like Second Harvest in the county and many cities. Uh, and now we're in the, the food distribution business. So we've got 160 employees uh, working every day on that issue and, and seeing how we can expand from what we're currently serving, which is about 2 million meals a week. Um, so that's an example of the kind of support work uh, that we do as a city. Obviously, we're not in the public health space. We just want to fill in the, the interstices. Okay, for any of you, one of the challenges of dealing with a crisis like this is fragmented government. I think Jeff referred to this earlier. Just in the Bay Area, we have nine counties and 100 cities, plus 400 cities in the state, 58 counties, plus other states, plus the federal government, yet we're all in this together. It seems like other countries might have, that have more unitary government might have handled this better, South Korea and Taiwan, for example. Do you think there's been sufficient cooperation at all levels regionally? Have you had enough support from the state and federal governments with resources and, and information and guidance? So let me, uh, let me start and, um, and say that I think – you know, one of the biggest challenges that we have is that um, being collaborative in challenging times is more challenging than being collaborative in good times in some ways. But one of the things that I have really appreciated about being from the Bay Area was the, the most important and profound act of leadership I think that the health officers took was that they acted together. And so I, I, I just want to pick you know, hold that up because I think we often think of being collaborative as a, it's, it's a little bit weaker from a leadership perspective. You want to strike out and be on your own. I think if there's no time that, that reflects better the, the need for collaboration. Um, The second thing I'll say is that, you know, 
Mayor Licardo, myself, uh, Dr. Smith, Dave Sykes from the city of San Jose, uh, County Executive, and Nuria Fernandez, our VTA director, you know, we talk almost every morning. And and that's really important because we don't agree on everything. And, you know, we really don't, but we're really trying to work together. And then the last thing I want to say is I really appreciate, and there's no place I'd rather be than in Santa Clara County, in the Bay Area, and in California right now, than anywhere in the country. I am impressed with the leadership. I'm impressed with the the willingness to look at science. I'm impressed with life being a held as the highest goal that we have to protect to protect life. And I think our governor has done a phenomenal job of creating a framework that we can all up, operate within. I don't feel that way about the whole rest of the country. And one of the things I'm most concerned about is that I feel like counties like ours and the nine barrier counties have really done a lot to sacrifice and protect uh, life. And yet we have states that still don't have a state um, uh, stay at home order and or you know, shelter in place order and and they and really we're so connected that they risk people who are not following this order are risking the lives of people in whole other states and countries um, so I think there's a good news kind of bad news story there yeah if I could also just add I think first kudos to President Chavez for really convening those conversations she was referring to and making sure that we're all talking to one another and, and really working through whatever differences we have uh, but you know there's I know I'm not the first person to say how desperately we need a national strategy around boosting testing uh, I know that that's not a novel thought to anybody on this call, but it, it's so self evident in every other country on the planet. Uh, and right now we've got every county and every mayor out there literally calling up companies to say, hey, can we get a shipment of, of test kits from South Korea? Uh, and, you know, working all of our supply lines through individual companies that we know have uh, their foothold in other parts of the globe. I mean, that is no way to run a pandemic. Uh, and I would love to see a much more uh, focused public health effort at the federal level so that we're not all out there trying to trying to do our own thing. Jeff Smith. Well, this uh, crisis really points out how connected we all are on an international basis and a national basis. And um, from a local perspective, I'm really happy that uh, I'm working in Santa Clara because even though we have our differences and challenges and things that we... um, have problems with uh, communicating. I think in the end, we'll be much closer. We already have been really pretty close. And when you compare us to the rest of the nation and the rest of the world, I think we function really well. And I'm very happy about the state. The governor has provided great leadership and has tried very hard to get us on the right uh, path with a good communication because communication is a big part of this uh, response. However, just like the mayor, I think we're really challenged uh, with uh, the federal uh, approach, which has been diversion, uh, disinformation, and lack of preparation. We know now that uh, this virus was present in our community and probably other communities way back in February. Um, in January, and that was a time period when we didn't have 10. 
test and the federal test was a failure, the initial one was. And we had warnings back in December and, you know, early November that the virus was coming. So we were very unprepared. We're still unprepared at the federal level. We still don't see much leadership there. We still have the president recommending injecting ourselves with uh, Clorox bleach, which is absurd. So uh, locally, we're doing a good job. Federally, they're doing an awful job. Well, let me say thank you all. It's good to have local and state governments, at least, that, that we trust. So thanks for what you all are doing. we got a ton of questions you won't be surprised to hear about the shelter-in-place order, which I understand is likely to extend beyond May 3rd, which is not so far away. So let's talk about the planning for lifting shelter-in-place rules and getting the economy revved up again. Uh, when the shelter-in-place order is lifted, let me just run through a few of the questions that have come in about this. When the shelter-in-place order is lifted, will everything open at once? I think the answer is no. What are the costs of shelter-in-place for our economy? Uh, and then what about the non-economic impacts of shelter-in-place? And how are the economic and non-economic impacts affecting different communities within our larger community? Cindy, you want to start on this? Sure. And I, I, so first, and I, and actually Dr. Smith, I'm going to defer to him on the, you know, the timing of this, but let me just make one point. So I think yesterday we hit 50,000 deaths nationally and we have had 95 deaths here in our County. And, and I say that because there's still a lot we don't know about the virus, except we know it's extremely, extremely contagious. And we know that by putting efforts um, in place early on that we were able to really be aggressive about flattening the curve here. And, and so um, I think what the the challenge that we're going to have in how we move forward is what are the incremental steps we need, we can take that also give us a chance at making sure we do two things really well. One, that we manage the virus to keep having fewer and fewer people get it. And two, one of the reasons that we've done the shelter in place is we're trying to slow the spread so that we could have a healthcare system stand up that's strong and um, vital enough that it could really save and help as many people as possible. Um, so the way I see this is that I think we're going to slowly open up um, the economy based on how safe the workplaces are that we're sending people into. Because the last thing we want to do is put people in harm's way and furthermore, put their families in harm's way. Like, I, I think that is just a, a very risky thing for us. Now, in terms of the timing of that, one of the um, the projects that we're working on now with Stanford and um, U.S. USF is to take a look at what are the benchmarks that we need to hit so that we can uh, safely start to open up uh, the economy. And there's a lot of pressure on the doctors to give us the data that we need. And, you know, and, and they're feeling not just the pressure of having slowed down the economy and gotten, gotten us all the shelter in place, but now how do we safely open it up? And, you know, for one, I, I might just myself, I think that we're going to have to um, consider opening up sooner rather than later, not not like all at once, but really a, um, slowly. And one other reason, and Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith, you're sideways. we got to fix you there. Um, <laughs> uh, Dr. Smith, um, 
may be able to talk more about is that there are a few things. Thank you. Um, There are a few things that we need to make sure we, we have the capacity to do. And that is as people start to go back to work, being able to contact um, do contact tracing so that if somebody does get sick, we're able to safely put them uh, in quarantine and make sure we were able to communicate with everybody else that they may have been in contact with so we understand where the spread of the disease is coming from. Because a big challenge for us is we essentially we put everybody in quarantine because we didn't know who to put in quarantine. I mean, that's really the, the topsy-turvy of the challenge that we're in right now. Um, I don't know, Dr. Smith, if you wanted to add to that. If I said anything you wanted to say, nope, that's not right. <laughs> no, you, you got it pretty much right. I think uh, it's clear that the uh, shelter in place will not be relaxed completely or all at one time, but it's also clear that there will be staged relaxation. Again, you know, this is the only tool we have to deal with the pandemic. So we have to make sure that we don't relax it too soon or otherwise we have another big spike. But um, we don't really have all of the tools that we need to do it in a uh, completely measured manner. I know there's been lots of pressure to try to come up with a target of, you know, how many PPE do we need? How many tests do we need? How many people do we need to do contract contact tracing? And since this is the unique event, it's never happened before. It's hard to give exact numbers, but if you take the numbers that the governor came up with uh, and talked about, uh, he said that the entire state needs 60,000 tests a day. That means the Bay Area would need somewhere in the region of 15,000 a day. We're not even close to that. If you presume that every hospital worker would need one mask a day, that's just masks, and that those who work with numerous patients like nurses, doctors, technologists would need another three a day. That's, you know, millions of masks for the entire Bay Area region. And if you realize that there are um, thousands, tens of thousands of cases um, and that doing tracing for each one of those probably takes at least two or three hours. You multiply that out, that needs a legion of tracers at the same time looking at all those cases. So it's going to be targeted approach to, I think, you know, a few professions that are relatively safe now and then and will be in a different world. And I, I don't think people should expect to get back to quote normal. We'll be in a new normal um, for the rest of uh, our lives. Sam, what's the city perspective on lifting the shelter in place order? I know. I think I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, I think we have to appreciate that we're in a world with imperfect information and the county and all the health public health officials, Sacramento on down, are, are going to be doing their very best to give us the best information they can. And inevitably, uh, 72 hours later, they may learn uh, more. <laughs> that tells them they're going to have to adjust and pivot. And I think we just need to be patient and accepting and understanding of the fact that we're dealing with something we don't completely understand. Uh, and certainly there's going to it's appropriate to be level setting expectations that this is going to be a staged uh, recovery and how we pull out of this. 
uh, and that uh, we'll be learning as we go. And the public is going to need to understand that at times uh, we may need to pull back or accelerate based on what we learn. And uh, so I think if everyone goes into it with that understanding, I think we'll be very well off. I am, you know, I, I am personally concerned um, that the risks are on both sides. The risks are certainly there moving too fast. And we've seen that in other jurisdictions. We know the risk of doing nothing is tremendous as well because we are impoverishing uh, thousands of our families uh, as a result of what we have to do to save lives. And so uh, I think it is important for us to recognize the risks on both sides and to move appropriately, that these are measured risks we're going to have to take and we're not going to get it right perfectly every time. And so we're just going to have to learn and pivot. So let me go back to Cindy uh, to talk a little bit about the non-economic impacts of shelter in place. We Most of us understand the economic impacts and we know they're not equitably distributed. What about the non-economic impacts? You know, it's such a good question, Terry, that, you know, I, one of the things that, um, that has been sort of overwhelming is the need for services like mental health services in particular, where, you know, a lot of our past work was you're meeting people face to face. Like I had someone approach me to talk to me about not being able to go to AA. Right. So they said, wait, 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 if you're sheltering in place and we can't gather, how do I get my, how do I connect with my people that are helping me stay healthy? Um, And, you know, and what's been amazing to me, the, the, good side of that is that we've been able to expand telehealth pretty dramatically for most people um, and that we've been able to expand um, mental health services. But I think what we've also seen, and it is really tied to the economy, is that the, the yawning gap we had between those who have and those who have not, is it's just laid bare for all of us to see. That if you live in certain parts of the community, you don't have access to um, wi- Wi-Fi. You don't, and therefore, your child can't do their homework or get their assignments right now. And you can't sign up for benefits from your house that we've told you to stay in. So, like I think about that. I think about childcare. You know, another issue is that we have a lot of essential workers who are we're asking to go to work, and we're we really as a society we're completely reliant on our bus drivers, the garbage collection, the um, the folks in the grocery stores, the, the drivers, the truck drivers, and we don't have affordable childcare for them. And we don't, and, and the schools are closed. So I think that, that it's, they're kind of linked together. Um, and, and it's difficult to cut, to pull them apart. So one opportunity I think we have here is recognizing where we have those gaps, childcare, healthcare, um, You know, homelessness is another really good example that, you know, we're telling people to shelter in place to people who don't have shelters. Now, we're working on all of that, but I I think that the the real opportunity we have here is to fix what's broken in, in this time where we have less red tape, and frankly, we're all moving much faster than we used to, and recognize that we can be the the community we always wanted to be an equitable, safe, inclusive environment where everybody can thrive. And I, I think that's how we have to use this emergency. So that goes directly to one of the questions that another question that's come in on the chat line. And here it is. Has the crisis empowered us to take bolder steps to address persistent social problems like homelessness? Sam, you want to lead off on this? 
You know, I think Cindy put it very well. Um, and I, I think all of us are looking for ways now that there is an opportunity to move quickly uh, and with a lot of red tape cleared. Uh, a couple examples of things that we're working on. Um, you know, we know this digital divide has been very real in our community for uh, since the, the dawn of the digital age. And we've been working on this for three years in my office, seeing how we can find resources. And we've had some modest success. Uh, now that we see really, as, as Cindy said, it's really laid bare that thousands of children are not able to learn. And we're seeing some federal dollars that are emerging that can actually be used for this for both school districts in the city. This is a real opportunity for us to dig in, expand partnerships we have now, for example, with Eastside Union High School District, where we literally took a high school in the surrounding neighborhood and got 6,000 families hooked up to Wi-Fi uh, around James Lake. And now we're underway at Overfelt. And we're going to accelerate that to Urba Buena and keep doing that. You know, this is an opportunity to move fast. Um, Similarly, with the construction of, of housing for the homeless, uh, that has been a huge challenge for all of our communities. But again, we have now, because of the ability for the governor to say, hey, you can you can move past CEQA. You don't need all the red tape. We're taking advantage of that opportunity in three different sites. We're building hundreds of prefab modular units for the, for the homeless. That's not going to solve the problem, we know, but it's at least a step that we can take much more aggressively now than we ever could before. Uh, thank you. So um, here's a question. Maybe this is appropriate for Jeff. How does con- how does contact tracing work, and why is it important? Contract tracing uh, basically means that you gather information from the victim, their family, all of their contacts, um, and all of the contacts of their contacts about travel, underlying uh, diseases, communication about what areas of the community they were in um, and try to piece together like an investigator where the virus uh, traveled, how it was uh, communicated, how the transmission occurred in terms of timing. And you do that so that you can find areas and families that maybe have the virus and don't have symptoms and therefore need to be isolated to prevent passage of the uh, disease to others. It's a matter of trying to isolate where it comes from, not focusing on the results. So this is kind of a challenge in a country like America where civil liberties are so important. We've run into this constantly with dealing with homelessness, right? So how do do we assure that civil liberties are respected and yet we do the appropriate contract tracing to protect our health? Anybody? Well, right. It's uh, it's really a problem because we know that travel is what brought this uh, virus to the United States yeah. and also which caused it to spread like wildfire. And we certainly don't want to create a world where we're totalitarian and preventing people from talking to each other or locking them down. So we have to get consent to do contract contact tracing uh, but that limits our ability to know exactly what's going on in the community. So it's a balance. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting and complex area, Terry. I, I know, you know, for, for decades, the Supreme Court has said, look, all those constitutional civil liberties that we value so greatly in a, a time of pandemic or with quarantine, uh, we know that they need to be suspended temporarily at times. We would all love to be able to assemble and pray 
uh, as we have revered in that right for uh, centuries in this country, we can't do it right now. Uh, so we have to find a different way. But, but, you know, it seems to me that, uh, as we employ technology, particularly in contact tracing, obviously the human element is going to be important. But as we're seeing now, apps that are coming uh, into development, and they're already using now in places like Iceland, uh, we know that there are some real civil liberties issues that arise there to the extent that um, people are not given the right to opt in. And I suspect we're probably going to want to have a contact tracing app if it's deployed here in California, as we expect it will be, that will have some opt-in component. And there that's going to require a lot of effort for cities and counties to, to encourage people to say, please opt in because it's really important for us to have a broad network if this app is going to work uh, so that we can do it in a way that's consistent with our, our values at the same time that we're able to protect public health. Can I just add to that? I think, um, I think one of the, again, this is where we have an opportunity, which is that, I think what we have to make sure that we're doing that's so different than totalitarian governments is that we really are engaging the public and our, our communities in a real and meaningful way. And so, for example, if you go to our public health website, what you're going to see is dashboards that are very transparent about how many ventilators we have, how many people that we know are sick, how many people that have died, how many people have been tested. And it, this was a very important um it's a step for us. I know it was important to Dr. Cody, but as a county, we value transparency and our partnership with the public. And and so I think the how we do all of this is as critical as what we're doing um, because it, it determines the kind of society that we already think we are and the kind of society we think we want to be. So I think the point that Sam Sam raised about you know encouraging people to opt in is, is really critical because what we're literally saying to people is let's, let's opt in for our health. Let's opt in for our community. Let's opt in to protect our families. Um, and at the same time, we're going to have to work with these companies to make sure that the data is never inappropriately used. And it's a really, it's a really tough balance. We're working with, um, with Google now on, on a couple of different options and, and Apple, as you probably know, is rolling out a contact tracing um, a tool as well. And so, I think the other thing we're going to be demanding of our of our tech partners is that they continue to support our ability and our willing our our ability to protect privacy. And and it's such a fine line. I think the point Sam raised is so right on. Like this is the one of the biggest discussions that we'll be having, I think, both today, but what the implications are for the future. Cindy mentioned the county dashboard, and that really is an excellent source of all kinds of information and data. How do, how do you find that dashboard? So if you go to the public health website, and it's PH, or Santa Clara County Public Health, um, uh, org, so it's S-C-C-P-H.org, uh, you will find it. But if you just Google that name, yeah. if you go on it, you'll see there's a link to dashboards. Yeah. And the dashboards will show you how many, in fact, I pulled it up, how many people are ill, um, you know, what cities are people ill in? What is our surge capacity? And what, um, you know, how people are testing. And then we also have a section for long-term care facilities. So that, again, we're being as transparent as we can about what's happening in those, in those facilities as well. So I would just really encourage you to take a look at it. It's really got a lot of information. Okay, thank you. 
here's a question from kind of a different angle, and I'm not sure local government has much to do with this, but are you concerned with the current setup of the flu, uh, sorry, of the food supply chain? What changes might need to be implemented to make sure we're supplied and have access to what we need? Anybody? So, yeah, Sam, I know you guys have been taking the lead on that. Why don't you start and I'll jump in? Oh, thank you. I, I mean, first, I'm really grateful that we have amazing partners uh, like Second Harvest have been doing this for a long time and taking on an awful lot of the load. And the schools have really been stepping up. And, and kudos to Dr. Marianne Duan and all the school districts, 31 of them that we have here in the county. What um, what I'm more concerned about is what's happening at the national level. Um, and, you know, we're certainly seeing a lot of stories about real challenges because of breakdowns in markets and how ultimately uh, food that's being grown is now being essentially recycled, put back in the soil because there is no market to sell it to because restaurants are no longer buying. And uh, really so critical, this latest package that's emerging from Congress that the federal role is expanded sufficiently to provide an ongoing source of demand for all that agriculture uh, and all the meat that we critically need to continue to be produced uh, because we are certainly hearing a lot of concerns and how that may affect food prices and availability downstream weeks or months from now uh, is to be determined and, and really unsure. Yeah, and so let me jump in and um, and and reaffirm one point that that Sam raised, and then talk about two others. One is that, you know, I think there if there's been no other time for us to rethink our investment in agriculture and the food systems in our own country, this has been a profound wake up call. And and I say that because we have become so international in our purchasing that we're buying ventilators from China, which is very hard hit, which meant that when we were trying to buy those ventilators, they were getting scooped off of planes before we could actually even get them here. So I think there's going to have to be a whole new set of thinking about um, manufacturing and food in particular relative to our national security. So that's one. Two, I think it reminds us that we have a program in the county, and I know that Sam has played an incredible leadership role in making sure that County Valley was protected. But the fact of the matter is we have to invest in the maintenance of ag land in our, in our country and protect that ag land as if it were gold, because the long term, I think we're actually going to need it. And this is a really good example of a time where we, where we will. The other issue, though, I would say is that one of the bigger challenges that we've had in in states, mostly right-to-work states, but in states that have large um, uh, packing facilities like meat yeah. packing and other things, they have not been following the shelter-in-place. They're not following the social distancing. So we have whole um, companies closing down because their entire workforces or a majority of their workforces are sick. So this is another example of why if we had national leadership with a national framework around how we were going to be treating safe work environments, we wouldn't be allowing people to be so sick. And by the way, poorly paid uh, workers uh, across the country are paying with their lives and their health because we don't have those national protections. And that's one of the reasons as we roll back out, these protections are so critical because we have to be able to demonstrate that we are really caring about every worker. We've had workers get sick. We're working in, in the grocery stores. And what we need to do is make sure they have the, the protective equipment they need and that we're following the rules so that we don't have people getting needlessly sick. 
this is probably a very minor point about food supply, but actually while we're staying in place, this is a really good time to grow our own. So I hope as you all consider uh, lifting the stay in shelter in place order and opening up the economy, nurseries and hairdressers will be at the top of the list. Did you hear we just got lobbied, Dr. Smith? <laughs> Dr. Cody's listening. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's actually a really good point that this is an opportunity for people to get back to their roots. And I would also say we have a lot more people cooking right now. Yeah. You know, and probably, I mean, I was going to say for the first time, but that was a little too revealing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, now that my wife has been victimized by my cooking, yes. <laughs> Jeff, here's a viewer question I think I think uh, appropriate for you. And why is Santa Clara County not enforcing a face mask order like the other Bay Area counties? Good question. Well, first of all, um, Sarah and all of the uh, public health directors agree, and we agree that face masks are important in protecting not the person wearing the mask, but the person standing next to them, even though they're six feet away. Um, and they're strongly recommended to wear them no matter where you go. Um, I think what the difference is, is that uh, Sarah felt that we already have trouble enforcing other components of the order and making it an order would make it a crime to not wear a face mask on enforcement to be um, running around giving citations for. It's probably better to trust the uh, citizens that they'll wear the face mask and focus on other parts of the order that should be enforced by the police, things like um, gatherings and the like. Um, so we, we didn't want to put extra burden on the enforcement uh, structure we wanted to make sure that people wear face masks, but we realized that the most important tool we have is trust and responsibility of our citizens. And that's why there was no need to make it an order. Sam, speaking of uh, police, are, 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 are the crime rates down now? Uh, they are. But, you know, that's the crime we can see. What we're yeah. concerned about is a lot of the crime we can't see. You think about domestic violence and, and, and child abuse, sexual abuse. Those are, the, of course, the hidden crimes that become more worrisome uh, to the extent that we know in many of our, of our apartments, our homes here in San Jose, where it's so incredibly expensive to live, we've got two or three families living under one roof. That means a lot of different adults have access to children. We see a lot of tension, obviously, between uh, healthy families, let alone families where there's abuse. Uh, so we're very concerned about that in particular. Uh, but I would say that the positive is, is that what we've really seen is crime has dramatically dropped, uh, which shows that there is widespread compliance with the public health mandates. If I could just add to that, I think one of the one of the most important messages that we can give on this subject is that um, we're still open for business, meaning if you need to call 911, call. And if you can't talk, you can text 911. And that we're going to be ready um, for you. We have um, housing available for folks who are victims of violence, who are fearful for themselves or their children. And we we have resources available. So I just want to make sure people know they can call 911 if they're looking for other kinds of services and they don't, 
they don't want to dial 911, they can also call 211. And 211 has lots of, they'll take a little bit of information and they can get um, folks connected to the right uh, service. But we do want to make sure that people aren't afraid to call um, because we're, we're, we've got your back. Like if you need us, we're going to be there. That's great. Um, uh, right at the opening, Jeff Smith mentioned uh, that there might be some challenges to the county budget and the city budget in this coming year. You're in the budget-making process right now. You have to decide in June for the next fiscal year. Jeff, what are you what are you predicting for for the county budget? What's the good well, news first? The, the good news? Yeah. Uh, there's not a whole lot of good yeah, news. Later that. Um, we, uh, before the COVID virus, uh, issue came up, we were predicting a deficit in the 150 to 170 million dollar range in our ongoing expenditures and about 120 to 130 in our capital one-time funds. Now I would basically, um, double that at least maybe two and a half times, um, because we've been spending a lot of money on uh, COVID response and we're seeing a major downturn in the economy, obviously, um, and flattening of property taxes. So we're going to be um, coming to the board in a different way this year than we ever have before, um, looking to utilize as much of the federal and state recovery money as we can and one-time money to supplement ongoing services because we don't want to create a crash landing in the middle of a COVID pandemic. And we have a board that's very interested in obviously maintaining services. And so we'll have a budget process that extends all the way until September, um, readjusting based on new needs, new revenue, new changes in the uh, responsibilities that we have and it'll be a long-term process this year. Cindy, how's the, how's the board going to cope with this? You know, not well. <laughs> I mean, well, let, let me just make a couple of observations. One is that we really have a very strong administrative team under Dr. Smith's leadership. Um, and we, you know, so I think being able to really work on what we can get reimbursed from FEMA what the CARES Act um, does and doesn't allow us to do, because frankly, I think we need more flexibility from the money we're getting from the um, state and federal government. But one other thing I'll just point out that I, that one of the challenges we have is that the county, um, maybe two and a half years ago, Jeff, how long ago did we buy St. Louis and, um, and O'Connor hospitals? It was actually only two years ago. Jiminy Christmas. So let me just say this. We bought two hospitals. We operate 11 clinics. We have many, many more clinics that we invest in that provide mental health services and other um, other services, medical services. So we have a really extensive public system in the county, more extensive than most counties in the country. And the challenge for us is that we did that. And thank God we did. We would be in a whole different ballgame right now had we not. Um, but that what that means is that we really need the federal government um, to invest in the health infrastructure of, of um, counties like ours who have really taken our, our Commonwealth, our, 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 um, 
our dollars and we've invested in services and a lot of other places when people get when the counties get property taxes they spend them on roads and we don't spend them on roads we have a really expanded mental health services program we have an, a really ex- extensive uh, public health and program you know, we spend a lot more money, for example, on social services, particularly for foster youth. So we're in a very different situation than a lot of other places in the country. And one thing we're going to need is to continue to work with the, our federal partners to make sure that the reimbursements match the mechanisms by which we give services. Sam Licardo, what about the city? Well, I think like every city, we're going to be mightily challenged and, and uh, not much different from the county. Uh, the good news is we had a small surplus planned uh, for the next fiscal year before all this happened. And we've been working really hard to save reserves, anticipating there would be a recession uh, pretty imminently. Uh, we've even before we get to next year, just because revenues have fallen off the cliff in the last month, we've got a $45 million deficit just to solve in this current year. Then when we get to next year, the deficit will be well in excess of a hundred million. Uh, so a lot of very difficult conversations that we're starting now with our workforce uh, and with the community uh, so that we can get their best ideas about how we can save dollars and continue to provide the really vital services they depend on. I guess this leads to a, a question directly from one of our viewers. Uh, what could the federal government be doing more that, that could help? Uh, as far as I could see, the first few few aid packages have not included aid to state and local governments, right? We they have. I mean, I and Dr. Smith, you may and Sam, you may have more specifics. I, I think that with the biggest challenge that we have is that the money isn't flexible. So the first bucket of money they gave us said anything that you weren't planning already that is COVID related. We'll, we'll help you pay for that. The problem is, is that for the city, they have sales tax that have just fallen off. You know, no one's, it's not like we have people shopping because they're sheltering in place. Um, but for the county, it's going to be the challenges that we have with the pro- with property taxes. And so really a lot of the work we do, like a, it's not just COVID-19, but we have three hospitals, 11 clinics. You know, the, those are things that we need to maintain and keep funding now. And what we need from the federal government is flexibility. We need them to hold us accountable for how we spend every dime, but do not um, create rubrics that are not possible for us to meet. It would be a shame for us to be laying people off while we have CARES money sitting over here that we can't access. And I, I think it's particularly more challenging in some ways for the cities because it, in many respects, the stuff that we're doing right now is is COVID-19 related. So we're going to be able to access some of those funds. But for the cities, it's it, depending on the city and the kind of services they provide, it's very different. And so I that's part of the reason I think they have to give us flexibility and they have to fund where we're spending money, not randomly fund. Or they have to say, you know what, we're going to make up for your sales tax losses. We're going to make up for your property tax losses. You go to town and provide the services you need to provide for your communities. That's what I would wish for. Before the city responds to that, let me check in with the county executive to see if he wants to add anything to what the supervisor said. Well, I think uh, Cindy is right on. Um, The first few packages focused on small businesses appropriately um, and didn't put a lot of money into government, which is a problem because we provide a lot of services that keep the fabric of society together. And uh, the legislature, or I should say the Congress, 
particularly our delegation, is quite well aware of that, and they're working very hard to get more money for uh, the safety net. Um, the problem is, uh, in my estimation, that we don't have a whole lot of support in Washington in the Senate and the administration for government. Um, and there's a belief that cities, counties really don't do anything necessary. And we've got, you know, the um, Mitch McConnell saying that government should just declare bankruptcy. That's really a non-productive, useless kind of approach. Um, they need to provide enough resources for us to continue operating and provide the services that we provide for those that are in need. Sam, what about the city and federal assistance? I think uh, Cindy described it well. We want f flexibility and certainly we're more than willing to take whatever accountability uh, is necessary to ensure taxpayer dollars are used well. Even enough flexibility to say, uh, at least for those very core services, the emergency medical response, for example, that our fire department provides or or the police department uh, services, you know, to be able to backfill those gigantic holes that we all have in our budgets, uh, just to be able to keep the wheels on, that's going to be critically important. So looking ahead, <laughs> far ahead, how's our experience with COVID-19 likely to change the way we deal with future crises like this? Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, um, I um, sometimes to think uh, less of recovery and more of discovery. I think we're going to be discovering a new world, um, just like uh, viruses in the technological world change the way that we interact and change the way that uh, the internet works and dramatically changed our society. I think this virus is a warning shot across the bow that we need to change our world to be more aware of what our constituents need. Uh, one of the major confounding factors in responding to this virus is that the middle class has been destroyed by some policies coming emanating from the uh, federal government. And because of that, we have a large service population work or service economy, and the service economy is being destroyed by this virus. So the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and there's nobody in the middle to help respond to the needs. Cindy? You know, I, I, I totally agree with Dr. Smith. I think he's right. And I, and I think, I also think that um, this has given us an opportunity to see, literally to see some things we couldn't see before. So right now I can see all the way to San Francisco from the building I'm in because the air is so clear. <laughs> literally, yeah. Right? Yeah. So what it's making me think a lot about is what can we, what are, what are we doing right now? Like what are the unintended consequences that we can jump on? So for example, the, I'm the vice chair of the air quality district. And one of the things I'm asking the air quality district is to challenge employers to not have a third of the people or half of the people that work for them now drive to work every day. Like, I think that that should be a challenge for us because what we're also not seeing is that we're not seeing as many people in the emergency room, um, be, with uh, other kinds of lung, lung problems like asthma because the air is so much cleaner. Mm -hmm. So I like, I, th I look at that and I think, well, wait, we're learning something and we're learning that, that 
maybe we don't need everybody to go to work. And I, and I frankly think there are parts of the county we're going to be able to look at and say, gosh, these folks can work from home and we're still going to see the same level of results and in some areas even better. So I, I think this is an opportunity for all of us wearing our hats as employers to rethink our environment. And then the other thing is you look at restaurants who've just been devastated and you imagine that how, how will restaurants be able to pack people in again? Well, one question would be, and this, this would really be something I think that would be up to the mayor and the council, but what if you did what you all do for Viva Calle, which is you shut down the streets where you have the most restaurants and you let people just be right in the middle of the street and you put big fences around it so people can be far apart, but you create a whole new vibe for a downtown that's just aching, aching, aching to open up again. Um, and so I, I look at this and I think, well, there's a lot going wrong. But there's also an awful lot of opportunity that we really can seize upon that's going to make this a much better place to live, to work, to play, and frankly, to to reinvest. And that's what we're going to need. We're going to have to be a place that people want to reinvest both their lives, their livelihoods, rethink their worlds and their jobs. And then the other thing is, I think, to Dr. Smith's point, we recognize the holes we have in our our um, our society that we have been undervaluing and underpaying a whole class of people in this country, this is an opportunity to lift them up. They are leading us out of here. They're literally leading us to safety. Let's do something about that. Mayor Licardo, what's going to be different in the future? Well, I I think uh, Cindy said it very well. I, um, you know, know about every recession is that uh, Silicon Valley finds a way to reinvent us. And, uh, there will be reimagination, reinvention, I think, in this valley as a result of this. And, and in many ways, it will be for the good and we'll be rethinking how we work together. Uh, but I hope this doesn't force all of us to remain, uh, in our virtual caves, uh, communicating at a distance. Uh, that would be a huge loss for all of us in our human, uh, our, our ability to be able to be together, uh, in a meaningful way. We are learning that proximity really does matter. Uh, and that uh, human communication is much more than simply about what is transmitted over uh, electronically over over the internet. Uh, so I am hoping we gain appreciation for each other in new ways. Uh, certainly, the way Cindy articulated about how there are people every day who are saving lives by working in yeah. up in that grocery store. Uh, but it's uh, it's going to require a lot of creative thinking. I think in the next few months about what Silicon Valley becomes. And what I imagine is that we're going to be leading the rest of the country again uh, in this new recreated world. Well, we've reached the point in our program where we have time for one more question and it's kind of like what I just asked you, but let's be a little more specific this time about something good that you've seen come out of this situation. Something good. Yeah. Well, Sam, you want to start, I think. I think. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll just, uh, thank you. i just jump in. You know, the way people have stepped up yeah. in the community has just been incredible. You know, we created the Silicon Valley Strong effort. I uh, really appreciate uh, Cindy's efforts and, and, and people like Jen Loving over Destination Home and Chuck Robbins, the CEO of Cisco. Yeah. And, and in this effort, we were just trying to do everything we could to engage volunteers and 2,700 people volunteered within, I think, two or three days. More than $25 million contributed uh, through the efforts of Chuck and, and, and Jen and so many. And, and obviously, none of that money is enough to solve 
the extraordinary economic pain that so many folks are feeling in their own families. Uh, but it is helping thousands of families. And what I've seen is just such incredible leadership in, in all parts of our community. And just most recently, it was literally an eight-year-old boy who lives a block away from us. His family immigrated a couple block, a couple years ago. And they had a birthday party for him in the, in the front yard because he couldn't have any of his friends over. And so they, they had a, a virtual party and folks would walk by and cheer uh, from the, as he stood, stood there in the front yard uh, playing with his toys. And he wrote thank you notes to all the neighbors saying how happy he was to live in this neighborhood. Uh, and he wished that we'd all stay healthy and safe. And I think about the leadership of that eight-year-old. Uh, in thinking, hey, this is a good idea for me uh, to use this moment to lift folks up and to thank them and also to encourage them to continue to be safe. Great story. Jeff, something good. Well, you know, a lot of um, our motivation in life is either from fear or from love. And uh, even though there's a lot of fear in the community, I've seen a lot of love, you know, people have had time to think about what's really a priority for them in their life, and it tends to be their families, and that's good. And so I think there's a lot of love that's been extended uh, to people who are in need, and uh, that's good because it reinvigorates our society to care about things. Cindy, wrap it up for us. You know, I would say that um, I think the generosity of people has been profound. And, you know, we have a, a guy who's been working for Meals on Wheels for a really long time, who's got a, a, a person in their family that's immunocompromised, and he didn't want to miss being able to provide meals for people who were relying on him. And so he's been working 12-hour days, sacrificing, not seeing his son, because he knows that people need food. And, and I could give a thousand stories like that of people who just stepped up, like my neighbor who offered to buy, um, do grocery shopping, like day two of this, like figured out how to help people most in need. Um, and I think we live in a generous place. And in many respects, I think this has shown just our humanity, even though we can't be together. So true. So a huge thank you to Supervisor Cindy Chavez, Mayor Sam Licardo, County Executive Dr. Jeff Smith for joining us virtually today. The club has a wide range of virtual programs coming up, so please visit our website for more information. I'm Terry Christensen, and this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you, Terry. Thanks, Terry. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.